I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. I am sitting here with my little girl, Lucinda. She's almost 20 months old, and we welcome you to listen to my conversation with Ashley E. Lucas, author of a brand new book called Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration. I am with my daughter because I am at home recording all my shows since the pandemic. I don't go to campus much. I'm even department chair, and I only go in to the physical building to pick up mail and to uh, do any appointments that, I, that, that, that need to be face-to-face. But other than that, I'm at home, and I'm thinking about how hard it is for a lot of people during this time being at home. I think we use this... Um, this, this uh, simile, uh, we say, oh, it's like being in prison. We get curbside delivery or we get things delivered to us. We don't uh, interact with people on the level that we used to. And it could, be, it could be very difficult. It could be hard, especially if you're trapped in a small home and um, uh, alone or even with several people. It's, it's, it's difficult, but that analogy of it's like prison just doesn't seem to work. And I'm thinking about that as I read Ashley's book, um, Prison Theater, because one of the things she talks about is how difficult it is for non-prisoners, for visitors to enter into the prison walls. There's often regulations and uh, arbitrary sometimes that prevent people from coming in. And I'm thinking about prisoners today. I have a friend, a very close friend. There was a time when we were our best friends who is in Folsom Prison right now, probably for a life sentence. And I won't go into what he did. I don't even want to think about what he did. But um, I was going to visit him in April uh, when I was doing a book tour for Kafka in a Skirt. But, of course, my book tour was canceled because of the pandemic, so I didn't go to Sacramento, I didn't visit him, and I just got a letter from him, and he tells me that nobody can visit right now. And I'm thinking how hard it must be for prisoners right now during this time. Can't even see family. So I'd like to dedicate this show to my friend in Folsom State Prison, as well as all prisoners all over the world. May this pandemic pass. Ashley E. Lucas is an associate professor of theater and drama, as well as English language and literature at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I believe. She is director of the Prison Creative Arts Project. She is a fellow of the Ford Foundation, the UNC Faculty Engaged Scholars Programs, UNC's Institute for Arts and Humanities, and UM's Institute for the Humanities. Um, And this... I believe is her first book, Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration. Ashley, welcome to Words on a Wire. Thank you so much, Danielle. I'm honored to be here. I am an El Pasoan, and Words on a Wire has a very special place in my heart, so it's it's a great joy to be on the show today. You are from El Paso. I, I kind of heard that here and there, but uh, did you grow up here? I did. I'm a proud graduate of Bowie High School. No way. Bowie, right on the border. (laughs) Yes. And my mother still lives in El Paso, and I get home to visit her several times a year. Um, And I I have dreams of working at UTEP someday. So (laughs) if that is ever a possibility, let me know. Oh, it's a fantastic place to work. That's for sure. I'm very happy here. I'm from California originally, but I've been here now for over 20 years. So this is, this is home to me. 
That's beautiful. So um, let's start talking about your book with, maybe you can explain to the listeners what is Long-Termers Day and what is Angola, not the country, and how perhaps these two things may have partially inspired you writing this book. Sure. Well, long-termers are people who have been in prison for a very long time. And at Angola Prison, which is the largest prison in Louisiana and where the vast majority of all the incarcerated men in the state are housed, they have a lot of long-termers because the state sentencing laws are so incredibly harsh. Louisiana and Michigan, where I live now, are two of the states that have the longest sentences for people heading (laughs) into prison. So uh, I went to Long-Termers Day at Angola, which is in a swamp outside of Baton Rouge in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I attended that celebration. They were actually celebrating the men who had survived 25 years or more inside a prison. And my mother went with me, and we traveled to the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, to meet these men and to bear witness to their survival and their lives there. And while we were at Long-Termers Day, we were sitting at a table full of men who had been in prison as long as I had been alive, (laughs) because I was 25 at the time that I went into Angola for the first time. Uh, We were eating jambalaya, which was really good. It was by the (laughs) world-famous state champion jambalaya cookers. And all of a sudden, these men jumped up and started performing. They started doing this really delightful scene, an improvised play that they had created Um, about two old men watching all the women walk down the street and talking about them (laughs) as they went by. And for the majority of this delightful comic performance, the the quote-unquote women walking by were just invisible. They were watching as if they saw the women walking by. And then the big punchline at the end of it was that by far the tallest and largest man in the room emerges from the back of the audience dressed in really bad drag in a giant (laughs) flowered dress and a a really messy wig. And he makes his way to the the front of this chow hall where they were performing, or it was the visiting shed is what they call it but it was it was also a kind of dining hall and um he makes his way to the front and the men who have been talking all this smack about the women have nothing left to say they're completely silenced by the emergence of of the only person who actually appears as a quote-unquote woman in that moment and the men around us the long-termers in the audience were so delighted that some of them actually fell to the floor in laughter (laughs) And uh, it was this beautiful, beautiful thing to witness. And I didn't realize until years later when I started volunteering in prisons on a regular basis that it's not allowed for people to lie down on the floor in prison Mm -hmm. and that that's a thing we were instructed never to do in the theater workshops that I was doing. So there was something about that incredible moment in the performance about this comedy that made people so delighted that they could actually fall to the floor in laughter that really changed what was permissible about being in prison for a minute. Oh, that is a beautiful image. That that, that is definitely a beautiful image. And you were 25. Were you already, uh, not to give you a label, but were you already a theater person at the time? I was. I started performing in plays through, um, there was a company called El Paso Inc., Back in the day that I don't think existed No, no, anymore. there is a, a, a newspaper called El Paso, Inc. 
oh, maybe I'm getting the name wrong. There was there was a theater company that no longer exists that had El Paso in the title. I also did Kids and Company, oh, okay. which I don't think exists anymore. But I had been in shows at the El Paso Playhouse, and um, I've been blanking on the name of the theater company now. But it was, uh, they used to do performances at the Chamisal, uh-huh. and I was in The King and I when I was in the eighth grade. And that's really what got me into theater Mm. in a big way. It was my first community theater production, and I never stopped. And here I am now teaching theater at the University of Michigan. Wow. And uh, there's also another more complex and even more personal aspect to this interest in prison theater, where uh, it has to do with your father. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I I probably became a theater person within a couple of years of being a person who knew more than I ever wanted to know about prisons. My father went to prison in Texas when I was 15, and he ended up staying for 20 years wow. and five months. So it was this huge part of my life. I was, I was 15 when he went in and uh, 35 when he came home. And so it becoming a person who loved someone very deeply, who happened to live in a prison, was really the most formative experience of my life. It shaped everything I am and everything I do. And putting those worlds of theater and prison together right. didn't really happen until later on. Wow. And and that, that also um, uh, really blurs the line between you and other, the other being the prisoners when you, when you go into a prison because you, you know, you see them on such a, such a deep personal level as, as people and not as just prisoners, criminals, or, or, you know, any kind of uh, stigma or label they may have. Yeah. And, you know, I just was thinking, as you said that, that theater does that work too. Theater lets us inhabit like fiction, you know, right. the, the incredible things that you write, it helps us to inhabit other perspectives, other worlds, other lives that we wouldn't in another sense. But um, I, I write at some point in the book that when other people hear the word prisoner, they think about crime. And when I hear the word prisoner, I think about my father yeah. before I think about anything else. So it really does orient me very differently to... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that whole population. In, in fact, that, that the, the, what you were just uh, quoting—it's it's the quote I was looking for in my notes because it's such a beautiful way to to put it and to put things into context. And then the other thing is that when you walk into a prison to do a to do a to do a, a theater workshop or to talk about theater or to see how you might be able to organize something, you're walking in not only as a theater person and not only as the daughter of a prisoner, but you're also walking in there as a person with a socio-economic perspective, a political perspective. And so there's just so many different levels and perspectives going on when you walk into the uh, prison. You even bring up the, the, the racial disparity and, and all those things. And so it's almost as if what you're doing is, uh, is important work, not only for you, but important for the culture itself, I guess you could say. You're doing something that's, that matters. Thank you. I, I feel very present in the work. I, theater people talk a lot about 
presence that in on stage, if you're really present in the moment, then you're really in the character, in the action of the play, in the feeling of what's happening without being mm-hmm. distracted by thinking things like, what's my next line or who sneezed in the third row? <laughs> and I try to be present in that way in my work in prisons, that I'm really listening and learning and being in the moment with people inside because our our chances to spend time with people who live in a locked facility are really, really limited. So when you make it inside the walls and get to see somebody, however much time you have with them really matters. And mm-hmm. it's one of the beautiful things about getting to do this work is is feeling the urgency of your presence mattering. Mm-hmm. You don't get that much in the free world. You write that... Uh... Free world theater has a lot to learn from prison theater. Can you unpack that? I think in the simplest terms, there are people who will go to all kinds of lengths, directors in particular, in the theater in the free world to create a sense of urgency and to raise the stakes. We talk a lot in theater about the stakes of what is happening. And in prison, the stakes are always already really, really high. So the sense that what is happening matters, the feeling that the actors really care, that they are giving everything they have to give, is always already present in prison theater because people who live in prison understand very intimately that an opportunity can be taken away at the drop of a hat without cause or explanation. They understand the preciousness of the people who have come inside to see the work, or even a a gathering of people who live in the prison who normally don't get to be all in the same space at the same time for a cultural event that's rare in prison, Uh, the sense that that what we are doing upon this stage in this hour matters is really, really immediate in prison in a way that is almost impossible to create in the free world. So that's one thing. Um, The other piece of it is that When you go into prison from the outside world and you're not a person who works there, you're not on staff at the prison in some capacity, then you might be the only person they see this week who's not in a uniform. (laughs) You might be the only person they see this week who has a different way of speaking or who comes with a different intellectual trajectory or culture than most of what they see every day. And so another thing that we fight for in traditional theater spaces is the sense of really paying attention to other people and taking in the level of details in how a person moves, how they walk, how they think, what their pacing and their voice is. And people in prison are so excited to meet somebody new who's not inside that locked space all the time that they become incredibly good at character study. And that plays out to amazing effect in the theater. That is that, that that's interesting. You you quote um, somebody named Carlene Faith. Unfortunately, I don't really know her work or who she is, but she writes that whenever a group of people with weapons is given the authority to lock up and control a stigmatized group, which of course describes prison exactly, abuses are inevitable. I imagine working with people who do not have guns and uniforms must be <laughs> something that would yeah would 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 thrill them would 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 be you know a a break of their routine it absolutely is and I, it throws off the power dynamics of the prison for a brief amount of time it gives people 
some practice in what it's like to relate to somebody in a way that's not completely governed by an authoritarian structure. And that kind of practice is actually really important for people who will eventually reemerge in the free world. And, and even the, for those who are lifers or people with death sentences, uh, who we have way too many of in Texas, um, it gives you a chance to practice what it's like to be out in the world, to get to interact with people in a way that isn't all about somebody having absolute control over your life. And uh, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, theater as narrative. You know, they, theater tells stories about us and about, you know, about people. And, and I'm thinking of that vis-a-vis -vis the redemption narrative that you talk about, where there is this kind of false narrative that, you know, somebody's going to commit a crime, then they're going to go to prison, and they're going to be rehabilitated, and they're going to get out, and then everything's going to be fine which certainly doesn't seem to work that way. And I'm wondering how the material in prison theater interacts with, rejects, or even perhaps at times reinforces that redemption narrative, or do you just ignore the narrative altogether? Well, it's, that's a slightly complicated question to answer because there is actually so much theater happening in prisons around the world that it's difficult to characterize it as all doing the same kind of thing right. with narrative. So in one sense, it absolutely rejects the redemption narrative um, from the jump because you're showing people in their complexity. Theater is a great tool, like literature, except in a way that requires people to be alive and present with each other. Theater helps us to see people in their complexity, as opposed to seeing people cast as a certain kind of thing. So if people in a men's prison can play female characters in Shakespeare, or they can play kings, uh, or they can play people who, who live in very different life circumstances than the ones that they live in, then they're showing us a range of ability and complexity that we tend not to attribute to people in prison culturally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's on that level, we're automatically rejecting this rote narrative that bad person does bad thing, goes to prison and repents, and then becomes something different. Uh, I think the actual life circumstances that bring people to prison also inherently refute this redemption narrative, but we don't take the time to listen to that well enough very often. Mm -hmm. And and so the theater that is devised, original plays that are created by people in prison, gives them the chance to to tell us more about who they are, whether they're writing autobiographically or writing from their imaginations. Either way they end up giving us something different and more complex than what the redemption narrative would have us believe about people in prison. Well, one of the things that I'm talking to Ashley E. Lucas about her book, Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration. And uh, you, uh, as a professor, uh, organize a study abroad where you take students to, to Brazil, to, to, I think, Rio de Janeiro and or other places in in Brazil to actually go into the prisons and to, to do theater uh, workshops. And um, can you tell us how that works? It has been one of the, the great joys of my teaching career to get to lead this exchange program. So I, um, I work with a program at the University of Michigan called the Prison Creative Arts Project, or PCAP for short. 
and I used to be the director of the program. Now I'm the former director, um, but I'm still on their faculty. Mm-hmm. And what we do is to train community volunteers and students, both undergrads and grad students, to facilitate arts workshops in prisons. So we work primarily in theater, creative writing, visual art, and music, but we occasionally do a few other things as well. And so I will train a class of students in theater workshops specifically. So they go once a week to the prison in Michigan and facilitate an improv-based theater workshop for a whole semester, have a performance and a celebration at the end. And then those who wish to go to Brazil the following summer can join me for three weeks in two cities, in Rio de Janeiro and Florianópolis, which is in the state of Santa Catarina on the southern coast of Brazil. And we partner with two different universities, one in each of those cities, that also have year-round prison theater programs. So they will come to visit us in Michigan, and we go to visit them in Brazil and go into the prisons and also with some other social justice theater programs into hospitals and favelas to do theater work. And um, and my students very quickly realize that the forces that confine us in one country look very much the same right, in another right. place. And that must be and interesting, also, uh, negotiating the, the, the not only the cultural barrier, but the language barrier. Yes. So I spoke no Portuguese when I started that exchange program. I My Spanish is pretty decent because I grew up in El Paso, but I had a lot to learn. Um, I thought my Spanish would take me farther in Portuguese than it does, but it turns out people who speak Portuguese understand Spanish speakers a lot better than Spanish speakers understand <laughs> Portuguese. Right, right. Uh, something about the the phonetics of it make it work that way. But now I'm pretty fluent in Portuguese, and the exchange has gotten a lot deeper because I can translate whole theater workshops for my students. Um, And I encourage them to learn as much Portuguese as they can in the semester leading up to the trip. But one of the things we realize when we get there is that the... The interactions outside of the theater are a lot harder when you don't have the language, Uh but when we're in the theater, we can do so much with our bodies and voices and emotions that communicates quite well in any language. Wow. You know, and I I imagine one of the common uh, uh, details about prisons, no matter where they are, whether they're in Uruguay, where you you were invited by the government to go into the prisons and uh, create a workshop, or whether it was in uh, South Africa... Uh, Brazil, uh, Europe, I imagine one of the challenges is getting past the guards, getting past the arbitrary regulations, judgments that might come up from the managing staff because they don't like what you're wearing, maybe they don't like your boots, or they just, for some reason, maybe something's going on. Like, I I, I think of uh, entering the Vatican, you know, if you enter the Vatican and you're a woman and you have short sleeves, they won't let you in. Right. It's ridiculous. And I wonder, I, I imagine it's even worse sometimes in prisons that, you know, maybe there are one day the warden just decides to not allow visitors because there's some unrest somewhere, whether real or imagined. And not only would that be challenging, but I'm, I'm wondering what it's like now under COVID-19 and what it has done to to uh, all these these wonderful projects that you have going and I'm sure others have going around the world. The pandemic has been devastating for all of us. I mean, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what walk of life, it is it is an immense tragedy. And it's always a hard time to be in prison, but it is a particularly horrific time to be in prison right now. Mm-hmm. People in prison can't socially distance. They don't have enough protective equipment or cleaning supplies. 
um, many people I know in prisons, not just here in Michigan where I work now, but in other parts of the world who've been in touch with me during this time are saying that they don't want anyone to know when they get sick because they don't feel that they'll get decent treatment anyway, and they believe that they'll be thrown into solitary confinement and suffer the punishments of solitary confinement while being ill. So the disease spreads more. And, you know, we see that in other walks of life, too. People who are afraid of losing their jobs don't want to admit that they're sick because they need to go to work. They need the paycheck. Um, It's a horrific position to be in. And for most prisons that I've heard of in the entire world right now, all non-essential personnel are not allowed to enter the facility. So we can't go in as volunteers who lead theater programs. And more devastatingly, people's families can't visit. And that's incredibly painful for the folks inside. So many of the prison theater companies that I'm in touch with at present have pivoted to start doing correspondence programming. So here at PCAP, we are sending weekly activity packets with uh, arts activities in visual art, creative writing, and theater mm-hmm. to complete each week and return to our facilitators. And so we try to, to still build a sense of community across the walls that divide us, but it's, it's very different work and very difficult work to do in correspondence, especially because of the assault on the U.S. Postal Service right. and the, the troubles that we always have with prison mailrooms, which really delay the delivery of mail and censor everything and... It's just really a challenging time, and in the midst of all of that, I remain profoundly grateful that, at least at PCAP, we have found a way forward where we're not completely cut off from people. My colleagues in Brazil are sending a lot of letters with messages of hope Mm. and poetry and things like this to people inside, but they're not getting any responses because the people inside don't have pen and paper or postage or envelopes to be able to communicate back. Yeah, and um, you write, uh, the law of the jungle, which is the law of the system, is sanctified so that the defeated people accept their condition as destiny. It's is a, a very powerful statement, and I imagine that uh, that, that um, condition uh, is probably even more bleak and dark for a lot of people that aren't able to to see others than, you know, to see anybody else other than the guards. And that's, like you said, especially their family. Do you, do you look forward to or do you anticipate when you're going to be able to reenter the prisons? I, I guess that's really kind of a hard question to ask. You know, we don't know where we are with this pandemic and we don't know what's going to happen. But what are you doing to prepare? Well, it's, it is such a hard thing to predict. I'm... I'm pretty positive that at least for the school year in PCAP, because we do involve university students, is run on a semesterly basis, we are prepared to be only communicating through correspondence for the remainder of of the 2020-2021 school year. Uh, If we had a vaccine and it was widely available, I would hope that we could go back in the fall of 2021. But I am also realistic about the fact that whatever the rest of society gets, I think people in prison will be the last right, to be right. cared for. And I can't in good conscience put their health in danger. Like if all of my students and I had the vaccine, it still would not be responsible of us to go inside a prison when people inside are not vaccinated because their health is at greater risk and who knows what we brought in with us. 
Well, I'm talking to Ashley E. Lucas, author of Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration. Uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately, because I have 30 more questions that I wanted to ask you. And as we talk, 30 more popped into my mind. But let's talk just really quickly about the structure of the book. You made the choice somewhere along the line, and maybe you can tell us where in the process you made that choice to write half the book and then to turn over chapters to other scholars on prison theater. Why did you do that, and what effect do you think that overall gave the book? Well, I fundamentally believe that we need as many eyes on this cultural phenomenon as we can possibly get. There is a growing literature of articles and edited volumes about uh, people doing theater in prisons, but there's still not enough to begin to cover the amount of really generative work that's happening in prisons throughout the world in theater. And so I wanted, I felt it as a political commitment to give space to other people who live in other places and have seen things that I have not seen to be able to describe those in the book and, and help get them out to a broader audience. Well, it's a fantastic, important book, and I would have never read it hadn't been for Beer, Bill Clark at Literarity here in El Paso. He, he sent me a text. He says, you got to read this book, and I'm glad he did. And Ashley, I'm glad you wrote the book. Thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to Bill Clark. I hope that anybody who would like a copy of my book would buy it from Literarity because Bill has been a huge champion of the book, and it's a wonderful bookstore. Yeah, it is the best bookstore in the world. In fact, every time I get a royalty check for any of my books, I feel like I should take Bill out to dinner. <laughs> I feel the same way. He's promoted my book more than anyone, and it's a beautiful bookstore. I'm so grateful to have discovered it. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'd like to thank Ashley E. Lucas for joining me on Words on a Wire. And, of course, thank you, Lucinda, my beautiful baby girl, for joining Daddy while he records this. And thank you for everybody at KTIPS. See you next time. Don't forget, buy books. <laughs> <laughs>